Welcome to Long Distance Listening, a music podcast. Hello and welcome to Long Distance Listening. I'm Andrew. And I'm Nate. Welcome to our part one of our two-part interview with Dave Wilton of A Boy and His Kite. In part one, we're going to be talking with Dave just generally about the album, The Path Became a Ghost, about his songwriting process, about production of records, about just so many different topics from a general interview standpoint. And then in part two, that will be released soon after The Path Became a Ghost comes out, we will be going track by track through the new album, asking him questions about each song specifically and any other questions we have directly about that album. So, Nate, are you ready to jump into part one of our interview with Dave Walton? Yes, sir. Dave Wilton, also known as A Boy in His Kite, released his first full-length album, which was self-titled, in 2012. Dave is nearly ready to release his phenomenal sophomore record, The Path Became a Ghost, in the near future of 2020, to help redeem this year the best as he can. <laughs> Dave, welcome, and thanks for taking the time to join us. It's great to get to chat with you guys. So, Dave, Andrew and I... We really enjoyed your self-titled debut, but this new record, I feel like, and I'm, maybe I'm speaking for Andrew and I shouldn't be, but for me, it's definitely taken my fandom to a whole new level, and we're just uh, wicked pumped to have you, and this is great. But first off, before we get into serious questions about your music career and the record, we have a segment called How Blank Are You? So today it's called How Dave Wilton Are You? <laughs> nice. And you'll basically answer some either-or questions. Okay. And honestly, it's just a chance for us to hardcore judge you for your answers if you don't see eye-to-eye -eye with us because we're extremely insecure and feel better by putting others down. Now, obviously, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not extremely insecure. Only Andrew is. All right, so does that sound good with you, Dave? I'm so looking forward to it, yeah. Okay, sick. So, Andrew, you can start us off. All right, Dave, coffee or scotch? Scotch. Plane or road trip? Plane. Twin Peaks or Stranger Things? Stranger Things. Baseball game or fly fishing? You had, oh, that's hard. Pass. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we are aware that you're a Cubs fan, but it'd yes. be too easy to make you pick Cubs or someone else. So we're going to have you pick uh, Brewers or the Cardinals. Oh, definitely Brewers. I, I knew I knew that was going to be your answer. It felt still easy. <laughs> I wanted to have you pick Cardinals or Cardinals just to. Yeah. <laughs> Reading or writing? Reading. Collecting guitars or collecting gear? Gear. In the studio or on tour? In the studio. Tyler Cucciara's hair or drumming skills? <laughs> oh, <dude. laughs> uh, both are wild and fun. <laughs> <laughs> I like his drumming skills. Yeah. A boy or his kite and you can't have and, you got to pick one. Definitely the boy. Okay, good. 
All right. So because I am from Philly and Nate is from Boston, we're just going to ask you, Boston yeah. or Philly? Oh, man. Well, I've never been to Philly. And I have walked, I've been to Boston, but because you guys have the Patriots, I'm going with Philly. <laughs> dude, I thought it was going to happen oh for you, Oh my gosh, Nate. dude, I thought that was it. Dave, we have probably done, I don't know, maybe like, like I'm making up numbers, like 13, 15 interviews, I don't know how many. Nobody has said Boston. <laughs> Nobody. And I literally, I I thought for a brief Dude, moment. He teased you, You man. were like, I've never been to Philly. I have been to Boston. I was like, this is it. Yeah. And no, I was like, I've not been it. there, man. You know, I've walked Harvard Square and been been everywhere. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I don't know. It's all right. I realized I That's didn't right. know what to do if Dave picked Boston. I was like, I need to have like a, a like a horn here, or like something crazy, like to to show this occasion. But I'll probably still not do that because it's probably just never going to happen. Nate, they're both great cities. Yes, yes, they're both great. So. Forget yeah, that's like for being like Philly. the second favorite child, but being like <laughs> you're still great. Like, yeah, I mean, it's like if you if you're going off sports teams, yeah, they're just, it's just all difficult. <laughs> yep. But it was my love of like, yeah. I mean, I'll have to visit Philly, and then I can yeah. make a, an accurate decision. Yeah, we'll have you back for the next record, and, mm-hmm. and you can change your opinion. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> that's only if he goes to Philly and hates it, though. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to happen. <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of Boston or Philly, uh, you were booked on an early spring tour with your friends in Towers. And we also imagine you were planning on going tour after the record is released yeah. as well. And we hope that's still a possibility. But obviously, with COVID-19 and everything being canceled, that tour got canceled. And so how was that whole process of those shows being canceled? And then how has figuring out future tour stuff been going for you? It's been going pretty good. Um, It was really sad. I was really looking forward to um, getting out and singing the new songs and meeting people and... um, getting to travel and some towns that I've never gotten to travel to and play shows. And I love uh, Towers and Kyle and Greta. Uh, they're dear friends of mine. And so we were looking forward to kind of having like a family vibe tour where we're all just dear friends and um, getting to share the stage. And I was going to play um, in their band as well. So I was going to oh, wow. like play electric with them and, uh, so yeah, it was it was it was pretty great. Um, but then when it got, we literally were all in my studio uh, rehearsing, and COVID nineteen happened, and all the shutdowns, and the booking agency was like, "You guys better cancel." So we ended up we turned kind of that really sad situation, and we ended up making a Christmas album, <laughs> which was it felt like the most punk rock thing to do, and. Um, and so, yeah, Towers, we, we just wrote a bunch of songs together and ended up uh, starting a Christmas record for Towers. So we, we made the most of it. As far as, like, future plans for, for touring and shows, everything's up in the air, you know. So the Paradigm and the other booking agencies um, and promoters even, they're all 
they lost most of their staff. Venues are shutting down, literally, like, because they can't keep the doors open. And so when this thing ends and when bands can go out and start playing again, uh, who knows, man? It's going to be a new frontier. And so, but we're definitely, definitely going to go out and uh, I'll probably try to go out with some friends uh and even if it's like house shows like uh if venues shut down well we can still do house shows we can still find a home that can pack 30 to 50 people in it and bring a sound system and those are the kind of shows i grew up in anyways like basement shows and um so we'll make the most of it so for The Path Became a Ghost, you started a Kickstarter for the record, and yeah. you were able to raise the full support. Do you mind yes. describing how the Kickstarter idea started, as well as how it felt when you were able to reach your goal? Yeah. So I um, have a hard time asking people for help, so it was, <laughs> it was uh, I didn't want to do it, and my uh, wife, Allie, who's amazing, um, and also my dear friend Latifa Alatas, who co-produced the album with me. She was like, uh, you need to do a Kickstarter. And I was like, no, I can do it without. But she finally, both of them convinced me, not because of the money, but because of the, the accountability of it and uh, the like positive peer pressure <laughs> of saying, hey, this is something I'm working on. Um, I need your help to pay for it, but also I need your help just pushing me over the edge to do it. Um, and so, yeah, the, that's the beauty, I think, of Kickstarter is not just funding, but to actually be like, oh, there's like a few hundred people that are actually holding me accountable and believing in me and encouraging me to, to see this thing through. So this kind of transitions well in the sense that your self-titled debut was released in 2012 and yeah. your sophomore record is released early scheduled to be released 2020 mm -hmm. would you be willing to describe why there's such a large gap between releases and also yeah, sure. what was the timeline for the path became a ghost within mm -hmm. those eight years yeah um so i the first album was like uh just a beautiful all, everyone I've had a chance to work with, and obviously I run a recording studio and produce records and help people. I love my job. Um, but all my friends were like, Dave, make a record, you know? Um, and I was always like, well, maybe. But, you know, I had three young kids, like literally like four, three, and two, really, like, you know, um, and wasn't sleeping. <laughs> and trying to run a recording studio full-time, um, I just got to a point where I really felt like commissioned, I think is the right word. Like I felt like, oh, there, I need to make something. And I had the blessing of my wife and, and, and so they went to Illinois where I'm originally from Peoria, Illinois, to hang with, um, my parents and, uh, Allie's folks. And I spent three weeks making my first record uh the first week was actually my other band called loud harp uh we did the first loud harp album in that first week and then the last two weeks i did my whole record and so it was a really productive <laughs> yeah. intense three weeks but wow. it was awesome and really started kind of a, a trajectory of i'd always 
you know, I'm the kid that never wanted to be a front man. Uh, I remember being in like seventh grade in my first band or something and, uh, or just playing punk rock songs and whatever. And they're like, well, who's going to sing? And, and everyone's like, Dave, you're going to sing. <laughs> I never wanted to be the yeah. singer. I just, um, but I was voted to be the singer. So I started singing. And so I've always been a little bit of a reluctant front front person. And um, I love singing. Like, I love sharing my songs with people. But if I, I, I never walk into the room and think, oh, I'm the most talented person here, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, because I really value people. And I think people are brilliant and amazing. So, um, so it took me a while to find the courage post high school. I was in a bands and we, we did some shows and was offered a few different things that I could have pursued, but, um, but I I didn't. Um, so then when I made my first album, everything exploded, uh, and like very quickly and mysteriously, like, dude, miracle, you know, I got a song on the Twilight film and, uh, within, so, <laughs> sorry, I'm like stumbling all the words. It's it it's a like it's a crazy story. So I working on my, working on my album. My friend Latifa tells me, "Hey, Twilight's taking submissions. You should send them a song." And I was like, "No way." Yeah. I had never like read Twilight or seen the films, mm-hmm. um, and I wasn't like a huge fan of vampirism or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I went home and Allie's like, "Well." I told her, hey, they, Tief wants me to send in a song. And she goes, do it. They're going to pick it. And so I was like, well, okay. So I sent them a song I was really excited about called Cover Your Tracks. They picked it the next day. And then they said, like, send us everything you've ever done. Oh, wow. They kind of had to vet me. So I sent them a total unfinished record of myself, you know, my debut album I, and all scratch vocals no like nothing final no not mixed and they're like well we're gonna put it on hold and we'll let you know you know if it gets picked so i'm on tour in new haven connecticut with my friend ryan o'neill and the band sleeping at last and i was playing in his band and we were opening for Christina Perry, who both of them were on twilight yeah <laughs> and so i'm sitting downstairs and i get a call from the most kind, wonderful uh, licensing agent in L.A. named Mike Locke at Silverside Productions. And he said, Dave, they picked your song. And we were excited. So, <clears throat> But they're like, don't tell anybody. And so, um, of course, I told some people. And uh, But anyways, when they actually fully committed to the thing, like when they sent contracts, they called me and they're like, we're announcing the soundtrack tomorrow. Get your shit together. You don't even have a effing, you know, website. Yeah. And uh, and I was like, oh God, help me. <laughs> and uh, so I ended up getting on Twitter, got on Facebook, Instagram, built a website. So I went from like, not no one knew who I was besides a few people who care about reading liner notes, and um, to all of a sudden I was next on a soundtrack with Feist and Green Day and Passion Pit and. James McMorrow, and um, it was crazy. Um, so all that said, I'm be, not being a front man, 
a, a natural, like, let me entertain you uh, type of personality. Um, then all of a sudden I'm getting flown to, like, press junkets and playing in front of thousands of people. And it was really fun. Uh, but I remember there was a night when I got a call from from my friend, and he said, hey, I got, uh, I can get you on a, a late-night show. You want to do it? And, um, and I remember, like, just taking a moment to myself, uh, and I prayed, man. I, like, had to humble myself and be like, well, this is, like, everyone's dream, but it's not my dream. And, um, and I was faced with, like, becoming a full-time artist with children that were literally three, two, and one, knowing that if I did the late-night show, it would, like, I'd sign a booking deal, I'd be on tours, I'd be opening. All the doors were open. Um, and I had, like, a bunch of great people in the industry that loved my record. They thought it was a, a breath of fresh air at the time. And um, so I had some support. And uh, and I just chose to be a dad and to be a husband and um, and it was a they're they're to this day man my kids are the best songs I've ever made so I I don't regret it for a minute um, but and I think in general the main reason there's a gap is because yeah I needed to be really present for my kids so. Despite not uh, releasing any records yourself, you were able to engineer, mix, master, and produce for a bunch of incredible artists over the years at your studio, Coalesce Audio. Yeah. And some of those artists include Josh Garrels, Jason Upton, Towers, Zach Winters, Molly Scraggs, Jared Gibson, that goes on and on. What have you learned from working with the artists you've worked with that has helped make making this record what it is? Oh, so much. I think every artist that I, not every, but the majority of the artists that I work with are very confident in who they are. They may be insecure about what people think of them, but they know who they are. And um, they know the sound that they have. They know the unique instrument that they they possess in life and they use it really well and so being around uh, artists like Upton and Garrels and Zach and, and Towers those it's people that are unashamedly themselves it's like a fine line obviously I think everything in life has a little bit of tension um, but yeah watching them be 100% committed to their own sound and their own message uh, just reinforced what I've already I've always felt in me is that you know there's I'm a twin guys uh, my my twin Dan Dan is like one of my, still my best friend and we chat you know quite quite often uh, he lives in my hometown Peoria Illinois and um, I'm a twin, and I still know that I'm one of a kind. Do you know? That, like, what I possess, my voice, that how I hear, how I 
expressed, it's not arrogance, it's just simply like a realization that, well, I am what I am, and I'm going to try to share who I am in the most authentic way possible. And so I've learned that, I think, above all from the artists I've worked with. Obviously, I've learned little tricks of sound and I've tucked away like authors that they'll quote or poets that they'll recite to me or uh, even theologians or uh, mystics. And um, so they've really immensely helped my, uh, my reading game and my thinking and uh, like a prayerful uh, journeying and to trying to discover things in life. Uh, all my friends, are, we usually get into some pretty, <laughs> pretty fun conversations. Mm-hmm. So it should be no surprise that the production on the new album is excellent because of how incredible you are as an engineer and a producer. However, most engineers don't mix and master their own music. What are the benefits and what are the challenges of doing both of these in the process when it comes to making and releasing music? Well, I guess I'm a glutton a little bit for for how hard they like if something is difficult I somehow think oh it's good you know <laughs> and uh because I'm just an emo kid at heart but I think in general like the people that I dude I'm I'm still punk rock like I'm still like I grew up going to shows where they draw anarchy on my hands you know like <laughs> I don't if something tells if someone tells me I have to do it a certain way I'll be like, oh, really? <laughs> and and then I'll I'll be like, well, let's see about you know. I'm I'm in, in, really curious, and I find joy in learning, and I find joy in challenging myself. And so, I mix a lot of records, and I master a lot of records, and I produce a lot of records, and so I, I've developed these skill sets through the years and. The reason why the industry um, says use other people is, you know, it's great to get other people's perspective and people deserve to just pick a craft and be good at it. But at the heart of that is industrialism. And it's, um, I'm just not an industrialist. I feel like I'm more of like a, I want to be well-rounded in my artistry. So like, it'd be like, I mean, I love watching Carmelo Anthony shoot a basketball, but have you seen him play defense? <laughs> no. You know, so it's that's like I want to be well-rounded in, in my sphere of music and songwriting and mixing and sound and everything. And, you know, the Renaissance greats, like they sculpted, they painted, they drew, they wrote essays on astronomy they they were poets they were theologians and those are the men and women that I aspire to try to model my life after that sounds really arrogant when I say it but like I don't want to just be the best mixing engineer in the world I could make the most money and maybe I have the skill set to get close to that but I'd much rather learn a whole uh, litany of things and then never be bored. <laughs> yeah. 
So our mutual friend, Tyler Cucciara, who played on the record and, and helped with the new record, he mentioned that one of the things that stands out to him about recording with you and your recording space is the reverence that you have for your space there. So can you talk about your recording philosophy and how you cultivate the respect and care for your recording studio? Yeah, I think um, people, when by the time they come and we're hanging in the studio, I want people to feel loved and seen, and I also want them to feel valued. Like, I don't run my studio as like a, a full, full-fledged commercial studio. I think, in essence, it's an attached big studio on my house, but it's an attached to my house. And, um, and so some of the reverence, I think, is simply that this is how I've chose, uh, chosen to live my life, with my family, and I welcome people into my life. And in my life, I do have a, a great reverence for, for people and for time and for uh, spiritual life and for uh, intellectual pursuits. But yeah, there is an intentionality um, that is I've tried to cultivate so that art can be uh, totally free of outside pressures, there's really good pressures to have making music and, and in the studio, but um, looking at a time clock, uh, stressing about money, stressing about um, what people think, all, all the all the things that are industry, uh, I want to check at the door, including like Instagram. You know, I try to cultivate things where people. Um, are more present here with me and the music than they are with their, you know, followers on social media because they're not helping you make art. (laughs) I'm helping you make art. (laughs) uh, So, so yeah, so, and I love social media has its pluses and all that stuff, but in general, I think a great rule in any creative environment is to turn that stuff off and um, be present and then once you're present you can be spontaneous and that's one of my favorite things is uh, I think reverence allows for imagination to immediately have a thought and an idea and a feeling and then you just run Uh, but if there isn't any reverence then there's no humility there's no like receptivity to receive an idea that may be outside you And, um, and so that is like I think Tyler's realize that sometimes I'm quiet, not because I'm, I don't know what to say. I'm just waiting till I'm actually inspired, you know? Yeah. So you write everything for a boy and his kite outside of the one cover for the record. Yet you bring in so many friends to collaborate on your projects. Why is collaboration so important to you? And what does that collaboration process look like? It's just good to have friends. (laughs) (laughs) Like to make a record alone, is um, it's a pretty painful experience. You kind of it's it'd be like giving birth alone. You can do it. <laughs> the same outcome happens, but your memory is like, oh, I remember when I pushed out a baby and I was alone. <laughs> like that sucks. Mm-hmm. So there's still the, the amount of pain in every record, but having friends just amplifies the joy, and it helps the hard stuff. You know. It makes it worth it. So what does your writing process look like? Do you tend to start with a chord structure, melodies, lyrics? 
what do you start with? And then how do you build those beginnings into a flushed out and layered track? Yeah, songs usually come with just uh, a feeling. And I'll be sitting or walking or reading. And then I'll just be struck with like a, a very strong emotion or sense. And I think any writer or any musician can attest that there is kind of like a physicality to it. It feels like you have to go pee. <laughs> like it's more an urge than anything um, for me personally. So uh, if I feel that urge, uh, if I'm sensitive and I have the opportunity to do something about it, I'll immediately just ra- reach for whatever instrument is closest to me. And when I grab the instrument, um, I immediately, my fingers, you know, as a musician, you just quickly try to find the notes that express what you feel in that time uh, or what you're thinking or whatever. But I'm not that smart, so it's mostly just uh, feel. And so I'll immediately find a chord or a movement on an instrument. Uh, Usually it's the verse of a song. And then right away, once I have a chord sequence or a riff, man, it's just really quick. I don't know how to describe it. It'd be like um, there's all these fish in a stream and you know you've got five minutes to catch as many of them as possible. And you're just like, boom, you know, whichever one takes, you're bringing it in. You know, there's no... uh, Everything is gratefulness when I'm writing, you know. I'm just, anything comes, I'm like, thank you, God. Because <laughs> uh, it doesn't always. So so I'll grab a chord and then I'll, um, often it goes to a rhythm because I'm a drummer. Uh, that was my first instrument. And I'll just play a beat and then I'll just feel it out. You know, that's the joy of being in a recording studio is I have all these instruments and they're all plugged in. So when a song idea comes, I can like not only write the song musically, but I can write, I can flesh it out, you know. And then at some point I'll feel like there's something in my gut that I need to express and sing. And I'll grab a really cheap microphone that doesn't intimidate me at all that I won't ever judge my voice because it sounds old and I'll put a bunch of reverb on it and I'll literally just sing. I'll sing gibberish or I'll sing in tongues. I hope that, you know, that's offensive to some people. (laughs) Get over it. But like, you know, I'm quite mystical about it. Whatever, Like, I trust myself, you know. And if something hard and heavy comes out, oh man, that feels so healing for me. I'm never like, whoa, where'd that come from? I'm always like, wow, okay, I got to deal with that, you know. <laughs> um, or I can take joy in what came out. I'm never, I'm never like filtering myself in my own creative expression. So songs come very spontaneously uh, based on a feeling. And sometimes words come with them and sometimes they don't. And when they do, oh man, what a gift. Um, but most of the time syllables and melody come and then I do the hard work of crafting poetry that uh, matches the feeling and matches the cadence and matches the 
uh, how my mouth felt when I sang that gibberish. I want my mouth to feel the same when I'm singing the lyric. So before I transition to my next question, I remembered something. So speaking of, you said sometimes lyrics come, sometimes they don't. I was looking at lyrics from your self-titled and on this website, and it said there was lyrics for Let It Down. And I was like, that's weird. Isn't that like an instrumental track? And so I looked up the lyrics (laughs) that they had for Let It Down, and they were the lyrics for Let It Snow. (laughs) And so uh, I just thought that was hilarious. But um, That makes me so happy. (laughs) But you know what's funny about that? Is I wrote that in the biggest snowstorm of my life in Colorado. Wow. Ain't that poetic. So that song is actually me... Uh, Allie was working. She was away for a few days, and I was lonely. And I was sitting out my window. That like that melody came, and um, as snow was falling. Hmm. So I think that's pretty cool. That's awesome. Man. <laughs> so speaking of actual lyrics that you've written, uh, you use a lot of parallelism. And yeah, I was just curious, what kind of draws you to write in that way? I don't know. I. I think I've always been drawn to poets and to um, to singers and songwriters that could say something really truthful, but have it be vague enough to where it could be true to a lot of different people. And um, I've always felt invited by, when, like I said, going back to the punk rock thing, when someone tells me what something should be, I'll be like, no, I will do something else. <laughs> And so maybe it's just my care for people in that I never want to force my ideals or philosophy on people. I want to have a conversation. And I think that uh, drawing parallels between things, also like um, personification, that was new for me. And Sunny Day, I wrote about my favorite band growing up, Sunny Day Real Estate. And I thought, well... I've always wanted to write a song to them and for them. And it took shape into a really cool song about nostalgia, you know. Honestly, I try to be well-read in poetry and stuff, but I don't, um, whatever comes, I tend to just say, say thank you. So there wasn't, I worked very hard on the stuff, but there I wasn't trying to prove a point as much as I was just trying to, express things that feel true to me and feel beautiful to me and express kind of where I'm at in life. So speaking of Sunny Day, that was the first single released from the record. The first time I heard it, my reaction was kind of like, wow, you kind of picked right off where the self-titled kind of left off from so many different factors and sounds. And so I was expecting the same thing with time and then it was like nope (laughs) it was like no way it was totally different the song was a lot darker Mm -hmm. it was kind of carried by the bass in a way that i feel like i haven't heard many of your songs go that route and uh i was just wondering what was the thought process behind releasing each of these songs as singles and then uh do you plan on releasing uh, another single or more singles before the record drops yes So Sunny Day, it kind of ended up being a song that a lot of people, whether they knew of Sunny Day Real Estate or not, they just, they thought it was catchy. And it made them feel the same way I felt. And I thought that was really special. 
I got a bunch of messages and emails from people before I released it saying, oh, man, I, I really resonate with this growing old thing and I'm still feeling like a kid. And, um, and then COVID-19 happened, and I just felt like we could use a little bit of sunlight. And, um, like, we all miss, in some sense, being able to just go outside with our friends. And, and so it was a little bit of my family and friends saying, hey, uh, this may not be my favorite song on the record, but I feel like it's a perfect first single. And, um, and then when COVID happened, I was like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's, let's give them a happy song. Yeah. <laughs> um, time, time is a song uh, that I wrote really, really fast, but it was a song that I, I've been thinking about for years. I have like a, I think we all have a relationship with time and we all kind of have this like inner accountant that um, we're either ashamed or we feel good or we are hopeful that's, you know, it's like, so there's just a lot of like feelings around time. And then uh, the reasoning for releasing that second, um, it was already scheduled, man. And, and then all the George Floyd's murder um, and being able to witness the horrible injustice to like black and brown communities across our country and marginalized and um i just thought hey this can uh you know i had a few people thought i was trying to profiteer off stuff i was like <laughs> well no like this was scheduled months in advance uh, yeah. but um i was very grateful that it's time for me and my family to do something and to uh, lend my voice and whatever platform i have to to say enough is enough and um time is here for changing like we, we need to to make some changes so yeah. um so i thought that was it actually hit pretty pretty good um i also had a lot of friends that felt like it encompassed the tension that a lot of people feel right now and i thought that that was nice um the next single is the cover it's the dylan uh dylan's with god on our side and guys it gets released on the 19th the same day that Trump's having his rally in Tulsa and <laughs> the emancipation, you know, like proclamation, um, the, the freeing of slaves. And I didn't plan that. Um, that was scheduled, but I think that's a needed song in yeah. this time. And even today, Dylan put out an article in the New York Times and I was like, wow, I feel grateful to have covered his, covered that song and made it, reimagined it so that people can hear it. And then the last single is going to be Words Underneath. And then I think the album is going to be released July 31st. Awesome. That's really exciting. So we are fascinated with track listing because it drastically shapes the journey a listener goes on while listening to a record. And we absolutely love the track listing for this new record. But it seems like these songs weren't always ordered like this. The final cut of the record is different than what you projected it would be on the Kickstarter. So do you enjoy the specific aspect of album construction and how difficult was it for you to find clarity on the final track listing? Oh, man, it's hard. It's a wrestling match for sure. Um, yeah, I wrote 14 songs and in, Jan in basically January 
of 2019, got together with Tyler and Tifa and my friend Stephen Roach, and they kind of just let me loose in my studio, and there were 14 songs. And as I worked on all of them and poured into all of them, it just became more clear that that a 14-song album was like so much work for me, Yeah, uh, having to do everything, you know? Yeah. But it also became clear that there were four songs that felt more kind of like the more Americana indie folk stuff on my first album. And they were heavy and lyric and beautiful songs, but they were more storytelling than they were the feeling that I wanted in The Path Became a Ghost was the thing in the re- in the title. I wanted to invite people into my mystical experience in life, you know, like a a mystery. And and these other songs, the four other songs are a bit more like just stories and poems that didn't it didn't feel like it fit. I tried to make it fit, uh, <laughs> but it, it didn't. And so song listing became I sent it off to a few of my real opinionated artist friends. Yeah, they all had like their own best journey, you know. Uh, my brother also had his, like, you have to do it this way. <laughs> and, I, I lo- and I loved it, you know. Yeah. But as you know, if someone tells me I have to do something, <laughs> I won't do it. And, uh, but no, it, I wanted to give an experience that felt like the last several years of my life. And much of the record is about my wife battling breast cancer. And... Uh, thank God she's fully healed and in remission and doing amazing. She could totally kick my ass right now. <laughs> she's so tough. Um, but, yeah, man, she... So I I, I, need, I wanted to kind of take a listener through that whole experience. And I wanted to take myself through that experience. I wanted to remember. And so all oh, the song, it starts in a song uh, called Shadowland that um, is very much about my relationship with my son uh, who helped write it with me. Uh, it's a fun story, but all, but it's it really resembles my relationship with God and the weirdness and the beauty of that. Um, and then it quickly starts going into my relationship with people. Time is about, and Sunny Day is about being confronted with mortality and we're all going to die and um, words underneath uh, goes into my daughter has severe dyslexia and uh, I wrote that song three times and Mm -hmm. it just never fit and finally on the third time I knew what it was about and it was about my daughter and um, and so I crafted the song as if she can sing it and it's her experience in life with her experience with words and language and then it goes to Allie and the next few songs become about my wife and then of course uh, my faith is always intertwined with that stuff I can't help it I just I think Jesus is the coolest Um, and then it goes into family and it kind of ends with me and Allie singing at the end on and on we'll find a way like, like I don't know. I can't promise you tomorrow, but today we're we're gonna do this, and we'll find a way. So, I wanted to give people um, my experience, 
And that song order felt the most authentic. So the setting of the record, and again, like, obviously, all of these lyrical and thematic things are going to be amorphous to a certain extent. But for me, there seems to be like a journey where light and darkness kind of pave the way for understanding, misunderstanding, the mystery of not knowing. And all these themes and images play a role in the title of the record, The Path Became a Ghost. And the title isn't found anywhere on the record. I don't even think path or ghost, like those words individually, I don't even think are on the record. And yet that imagery just like permeates the album. And what I find most interesting about the title is the verb, The Path Became a a ghost not the path is a ghost became indicates mm. that it wasn't always this way your path at one point felt much more clear and concrete and i was just wondering what drew you to these themes of light darkness and the journey home and how did you come up with the title the path became a ghost i was writing a song and it that, uh, that line came out of me and i remember just feeling like Oh, that's like my life. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I was young, I really enjoyed feeling like I understood everything. And I found a sense of comfort and a sense of accomplishment in feeling certain about everything. Having an answer for everything. And, and if I didn't have an answer for something, I would just assume I'd find the answer if I started talking, you know. And I think my journey in life very much parallels my journey, uh, my spiritual life. You know, I, I try not to be very dualistic, like have my way I would talk to you guys or make music be different than if I was like in some, you know, Jesuit retreat house you know, or like on a silent retreat. So um, my spiritual life, to, I think, was maturing uh, in its ability to live with tension, to be able to find peace when there are no answers, and be willing to, like, not fight everything. And the imagery, the path became a ghost to me. It makes me, th you know, well, the path stopped but it became something I don't fully know. And so I felt a lot of freedom in that. I feel freedom in discovering what that ghost is, whether it's God or it's a way of living or, yeah, man, just being able to live at peace with not always knowing things. There was one uh, Wendell Berry uh, poem that I had on my desktop for like three years. <laughs> I'll read it to you guys. It's called Obstructions. And it says, It may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And when we no longer know which way to go, we have begun our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, Ah, there's another human in this world <laughs> that is okay. How, with obstructions, you know, another dear friend of mine, Jason Upton, always says, every interruption is an invitation. Are we able to, like, be receptive to what is happening currently? 
And um, when your plans fail and when your wife gets cancer and when you lose your job, uh, et cetera, et cetera, when life actually happens, are you going to be okay? So that's what uh, the title is about and it's what the record's about. As we start to wind down the general interview here before part two, where we go track by track, we wanted to just take a moment to talk about the album artwork for the new record. It's really interesting. Both of the singles so far, they're the sideways cropping of the original painting. Obviously, the cover for Sunny Day has a sun in it. Time looks like it has a setting sun, and it seems to also show a tombstone in the middle, though it could easily be seen through uh, something that's not there. But it's designed by Zach McNair and created by Kyle Steed. Do you mind sharing how the album artwork came about? Absolutely. Kyle is an old friend of mine, and I'm a huge fan of his progression uh, as an artist, as a human, as a man, as a father. He has at every turn, been okay doing something that felt present, even though it was new for him and for others, you know. And so he was, he started doing, um, he had done topography, he had done design. I mean, he's incredibly well-versed in many mediums. But he started doing these paintings that, um, and he was posting them online, and I just was really touched by them. They reminded me of my father's paintings that my dad did in, in the 60s. My father was a illustrator and painter. He studied in college and was pursuing uh, that path, that career. And then uh, my grandfather, who I never met, he basically told my father that he had to take over the family business, which was a mortuary. And, uh, and so my dad had to give up his art. Um, and to take over the business. And my dad's a, a, an amazing man. But there was always, I've always like been drawn to my father's art. It was very 60s, very like uh, hippie, like Jesus people, like, uh, but like just wild art, you know, <clears throat> abstract, but with like deep meaning. And so Kyle started doing a bunch of artwork that literally was like, whoa, that looks like my dad. And so I called him. And I was like, bro, I'm going to do a record. I don't know when. <laughs> <laughs> this would have been like in September. And I said, um, I have like 25 demos that I've recorded over the past few months, just real simple iPhone recordings. If I sent those to you, would you consider doing my artwork for my record? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> so... Um, so I sent it to him, and he's like, release it, you know, classic artist. And I was like, no, how about not? <laughs> and uh, so we just, so he, he signed on board. And so then uh, once I recorded the basic tracks for the record, I sent them to him. And he took, you know, a week or whatever uh, listening through and then created multiple pieces of art. And I would be like, no. Yes, no, you know, and he would, but then like, dude, classic artist, like he would, I'd love a piece and then he'd paint over it. And I was like, dude, you know? <laughs> uh, but it was a neat experience working with another fully independent artist and commissioning work. So I commissioned him to do basically like three pieces uh, that I could use for the record. And dude, he, it was just wonderful to be with someone in a, of a different discipline where my music was inspiring 
him and his art was inspiring me and I found that to be exhilarating and he came to visit and we talked art and music and spirituality and um, it was great so that was Kyle and then um, Zach I had heard of through my friend Latifa Alatas and she had used him on her Modus Beer record and uh, a few of her other stuff and and he, I had a chance to meet him uh, one day he came and hung in the studio and we just I felt like we disconnected as people and um, and so and I have a huge fan of his work and I knew that Kyle uh, the, his art would be art he's not gonna like <laughs> design a CD for me you know and so I needed a designer that could take his art and his imaginings and interpretation of my music and make it work and so Zach did a beautiful job and he um we settled on what would be the cover and um and we just tried to stick to it so yeah all the singles are from the album and I I thought that's kind of fun that when you see the album you realize oh all the singles are from this thing so <laughs> I haven't seen that before so I thought that was creative so lastly, you have another project called Loud Harp with your co-creator, Asher Seifink. This is more of a lament worship project than A Boy and His Kite, than that project starting to release new music this year as well. Can you talk about that project and what fans can be expecting from Loud Harp in the future? Yeah, we needed a break. <laughs> and uh, we needed to dedicate some time to our families, obviously with my wife's cancer and... Um, Asher and his his sweet family, and he also started a bunch of cool businesses in Salt Lake City. But man, we're we're really excited about doing new new music, and we've got we've got an EP that's uh, almost fully tracked at the moment, and then we're excited to start writing some new stuff as well. And we'll be releasing probably the singles leading up to the EP um, through this year. And, uh, and yeah, it's Ash, like Loud Harp is me and Asher's friendship. And it's our exploring like our own hearts and prayers and our own laments to God and trying to find joy, obviously, receiving joy. But it is like we're two very like, different people, but we grew up listening to the same music. Uh, even though I was in Illinois, he was in Utah. Uh, we grew up listening to several of the same bands. Like we both love sports. Uh, we're both like super competitive, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and whenever we're together, there is just um, something special that's hard to explain. But he draws out the best in me in that particular area, and I draw out the best in him in that area, and. He has my favorite voice, like on the planet, and so um, I do try to do my part for humanity and getting him to sing. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I try to make uh, we write things together, and but I I really do feel like it is he is a gift to the planet, and um, if I can write music that can carry his voice and, and the message of both of our hearts that it will do some good for somebody somewhere. 
Thank you so much for listening to part one of our two-part interview with Dave from A Boy in His Kite. His record, The Path Begin with Ghost, will be released on July 31st. And our part two, which will be a track-by-track interview through the record, will be released shortly after the album release. So thanks, and we're looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you guys so much for listening to part one. We hope that you enjoyed it and are excited for part two. Make sure that you subscribe to Long Distance Listening so you don't miss when that episode is released. Also, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at LDLpod. And you can also email us at listening at gmail.com. Thanks so much and have a great day. Tell me, what did you learn from the Tillamook burn or the 4th of July? We're all going to die.